If you have your Bible with you, open it to Revelation chapter 5. We'll be continuing in our verse-by-verse study through the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 5. Last week we took a look at Revelation chapter 4 and we saw, and uh, just to kind of give you some backdrop of what's taken place in the book of Revelation. In Revelation, John, in Revelation, the apostle John has been out on the island of Patmos. He's received this, this revelation from the Lord. The revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's about who Jesus Christ is. And uh, the outline for this book is found in Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. And I just want to read it to you very, very quickly because I think it's so important that we understand it. He says, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. So the Apostle John is to write down those things which he has seen. And he records that for us in Revelation chapter 1. And he has a picture. He sees the risen, the resurrected Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he writes it in chapter 1 and he describes it to us. And then he says, write the things that are. Write the things that are taking place right now currently. The condition of things. And he writes chapters 2 and chapters 3. And chapter 2 and 3 of Revelation is seven letters written to seven specific churches that were in the area of Asia Minor. And these letters were to be delivered to these churches, but they didn't just receive their letter. They would have received all the other churches' letters as well. So we talked about how these seven letters represents, and some of the churches had some issues that were being dealt with, and some of them, some of them he had nothing bad to say at all. But he was providing them some information on where they stood. He was letting them know, hey, you've left your first love. Hey, persecution is going to continue for a while, but don't worry, it'll end. Hey, you're lukewarm. And we read all these different letters and we studied them in detail. You can go back and catch them individually if you would like. But we said also those those seven letters represent a picture of the church age. They can speak to us directly, but they also represent the picture of this dispensation of grace that we're living in, uh, this, this church age that's taking place. I'm teaching you the book of Revelation, and I've told you from the beginning, from a pre-tribulation, pre-millennial perspective. And I will show you why I believe those things as we continue to study. And I spent some time last week explaining to you, we saw what I believe to be clearly the rapture of the church in Revelation chapter 4. You see, after chapter 2 and 3, the church age ends, and then we see John, and he's, in chapter 4, we see him looking to the sky, and he says, behold, a door is standing open. And he hears a voice like a trumpet, and the voice says, come up here. That's a beautiful picture of the church being called off of the earth. Come up here. John is immediately in the spirit, he says, taken up to the heavens, and he finds himself, he finds himself literally in the throne room of God. Literally. What's heaven going to be like? Revelation chapter 4 gives us a really good picture of what it's going to be like. It's not harps and sitting on clouds and strumming around, jumping from cloud to cloud like the cartoons. There will be harps there. We'll find that out today. But it's a beautiful picture of what this throne room of God's going to look like. And he saw in a couple notes there, and when he comes up to the throne room of God, what he sees is God on the throne. That's important. He didn't see an empty throne. He saw God on the throne. God was still there. He's still in control. He's still working. His plan is not completed yet. He's not dumbfounded. He's not going, oh, no, I don't know what to do. Things are getting away from me. He's still very much in control of everything that's taking place here on this earth. Everything. And we also said that John gave us this picture of these 24 thrones. And we talked about how the 24 thrones represented the, the, the believers in the Old Testament, the believers in the New Testament. The, the 12 and 12 was 24. You have the 12 tribes of Israel. You have the 12 apostles. Represents the, the, this culmination, this group, or this large body of believers that are now gathered before the throne. 
I honestly believe with all my heart the church will be called home someday. Why do you believe that, Rob? Well, we see it here in Revelation, but also if you remember back when we studied the church of Philadelphia, what did he tell the church? If you overcome, I will keep you from the hour of tribulation. What hour of tribulation? It's what's going to come starting next week in chapter 6. That's the hour of tribulation he's promising to keep them from. He told them, I'm going to put you on thrones. I'm going to allow you to rule and reign. I'm going to clothe you in white. We see those promises made to the seven churches. And here, as we pick up in chapter 5 this morning, it's just John continuing his place in the throne room of God. He's continuing his description of what he saw. And just as a reminder, remember, when you describe something, you're limited to the words that you know. You're limited to the knowledge that you have. So when John's describing these things, he's only limited, or I should say he is limited, to only the words that he knows. The larger vocabulary somebody has, the more descriptive they can be. Well, in John's case, he couldn't describe something as, say, a helicopter, because he'd never seen a helicopter. He didn't know what a helicopter was. He couldn't describe something as, say, a jet airplane, because he'd never seen an airplane. He didn't know what, he didn't know what that was. So he's limited to the things that he knows as he makes these comparisons. But as always, just as a side note, we're taking Revelation from an overview perspective. We're not going to get buried in any one detail too long because I think that if we do that, we're going to lose the big picture of what's taking place. So let's pick up in Revelation chapter 5. John is in the throne room of God, and here's what he says. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back. It was sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll. I want you to notice three things about this scroll. The first thing I want you to notice is the location of it. Where is it at? It's in the right hand of God. God is holding the scroll in his hand. Some of your translations might say a book. It, books weren't around back then. It was probably a scroll. Most, most scholars believe it was a scroll. But it's in the right hand of God. The right hand is always considered the hand of power. It's the hand of authority. In other words, what it's picturing is God has power, God has authority, and he's holding this scroll in his right hand. The second thing I want you to notice, it's written on both sides, which means it's written on the front and on the back. That's a little unusual back then because when they made scrolls or when they wanted to write something down, they would take a long piece of paper and they would roll it up and they would have three-inch columns or approximately three-inch columns of text. So when you read, you would read from left to right. So as you unrolled this side, you would roll this side. So you didn't have to stretch it all the way out. You would have a roll in each hand. You could roll, you could roll and unroll to stay in the location that you were at. When they made the papyrus, it was smooth on one side and rough on the other, very rough on the other. So it was unusual for them to have some, some writing on the back side or on the, on the other side of the scroll unless there was a lot to say, unless there was something they just couldn't possibly get all on the front side. Or one other instance where it happens on a title deed. To a piece of property, they would write on the front and on the back as well. So we see that it's in the right hand of God. It's written on both sides. And notice with me, 
It's sealed with seven seals. It's sealed with seven seals. Now, what do you imagine when you think of seven seals? Imagine like seven stickers. Well, they didn't have stickers back then. Okay, so what it was is they would take seven pieces of string and they would tie these pieces of string, a little knots around them. They would take a glob of wax. They would put the glob of wax on the string and they would take a signet ring, which was kind of like your signature, and they would imprint your signet ring on the glob of wax. So therefore, that, this scroll that he's holding in his hand was sealed seven times. There's seven pieces of string. You couldn't open the scroll until all seven seals were broken. If I had a scroll rolled up and I took seven pieces of string and I tied it all up and I took one off, I still couldn't open it. I wouldn't be able to open it until all seven were removed. So here's what we see. It's in the right hand of God. It's written on both sides and it's sealed with seven seals. Now the big question, what's the scroll? What's in the scroll? What what is it all about? Here's where Bible scholars differ. Here's where you can read one commentary and it's going to say one thing. You can read another commentary and it's going to say another thing. But I want to share with you some of the, I'll share with you some of the main beliefs and I'll share with you what I think it is personally. Some people believe that this scroll is God's certificate of divorce with the nation Israel. Some people think that it's God's certificate of divorce. If someone doesn't believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, they believe in what's called replacement theology, which means God is done with the nation Israel and he's replacing the nation Israel with the church. And they would claim that this scroll is the, is the, uh, certificate of divorce to the nation Israel. The problem with that, it says no one's worthy to open the scroll. And why wouldn't anybody be worthy to open a certificate of divorce? There's nothing secret about that. I mean, it's even today, divorces are public records, you know, so I don't think that would, that would buy, but that's certainly a possible explanation. Some people believe on the opposite spectrum that this scroll is actually a new covenant with the Jewish people. Where God is saying, listen, I'm going to remake my covenant with you. I'm going to restart with you. And this has the outline of what that covenant is. Some people believe that it's God's judgment on the enemies of Christ. So those people that have persecuted the church over the years and through the ages, here's his judgment on them. Some people believe that this, that this scroll is the book of Revelation for John. They believe that it's just the book of Revelation. It's rolled out. And by the way, if it was the book of Revelation, it would be about 15 feet long. That's how long it would take to write, the, how much paper it would take to write the book of Revelation on a scroll. But then again, these all have the same problem. The issue here is no one's worthy to open it. And all of those things, why wouldn't mankind be worthy to open it? Why wouldn't the angels be worthy to open it? But some people also believe it refers to the prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. Some people believe it's the Bible, the Old and the New Testament, just written out. And, you know, All of these things are possible beliefs, but I, I don't think they're very probable, and, and all, some of these beliefs are held by really smart guys that have studied a long time. But the next two, the next two that I'm going to give you, I think they are very possible. Some scholars believe that this scroll is the final will and testament of God. You guys know what a will is, right? If you, you prepare your last will and testament, it's what you want to happen upon the finality of your life. They say, hey, this is the final will and testament of God. So literally what they're saying is that this scroll, this scroll is is where God will settle the affairs of the universe. This is the the end times, the outcome. I'm going to settle my plan with the universe here. And this scroll represents that. And why do they believe that? Well, because on a Roman will, a Roman will was sealed with seven seals. And that's evidence because they actually have the wills of Augustus and Vespasian, Roman emperors. 
So they see this taking place in the Roman government. They say, hey, that could be a possibility. And I do believe that in some senses it does contain the final will of God's plan for the universe. We're going to see that unfold. But there's one other possibility this scroll could be. One other possibility. Some Bible scholars believe that this scroll is literally the title deed to planet Earth. The title deed. The ownership paperwork to planet Earth. And let me explain to you why they believe that. In the history of the Jewish culture, we learn that a title deed to a piece of property was written on a scroll. So if you bought a piece of property, they would write that title deed on a scroll and they would seal it with a single seal. So instead of seven seals, it would be a single seal. However, if the owner could not meet his financial obligations, he'd have to give up his title deed. At the time, his debts would be listed on the backside of the scroll. So the front side of the scroll would contain the title deed to the property. The debts would be contained would, on the backside. The debts would be contained on the backside. So here's what we do. His debts are on the backside of the title deed, and the deed would be sealed with seven seals and turned over to the lender or the one that was now in charge of the scroll. Okay? This is what happens with a Jewish piece of property. Now, if at any time during the next seven years, the property owner could pay off that debt, those seals could be broken, and the scroll would return back to him. That's, that's the, 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 uh, the seven years, and, and talks about the Sabbath years, and that's, that's part of Jewish history and Jewish culture. In seven years, all debts are erased, and if he could pay it off before that, it would, be, it would be given back to him. Now, if the owner was not able to pay off the debt, or passed away for some reason, that property could be redeemed by what was known, or what we passionately call a kinsman redeemer. You see, a kinsman redeemer could rescue the debtor. He could pay off the property. The kinsman redeemer would be the only one worthy to break the seals since the owner could not afford the debt. So let me just put it to you real simply. Let's say that you buy a piece of property. Your, your business is on it. You can't afford to pay it. That property gets sold for debt. The debt's written on the back of the scroll. At some point, you, you, you just you can't pay that debt. It's just too high. You just, you just can't do it. A kinsman redeemer could pay that debt for you, but there were certain requirements. It had to be a family member. They had to have the right to be the kinsman redeemer. Not anybody could redeem it for you. It had to be, they had to be worthy to open that scroll. They couldn't just decide, oh, I have extra money, so I want to I I you know, redeem this piece of property for you. It had to be done through a specific person meeting in a specific relationship. You say, Rob, why are you telling all this? Hang with me. It'll get important in a minute. If the owner was not able to pay off the debt or die, the kinsman redeemer could deliver him or rescue him from the debt by purchasing the property. The kinsman redeemer would be the only one worthy to, to break the seal since the original owner could not afford the debt. If you've studied the scriptures, you know for a fact that Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. Now let me explain it to you in the way of this title deed of planet earth that John is holding in his hands. You see, the Bible tells us in the book of Genesis... In the book of Genesis, the title deed, what I believe to be the title deed to planet Earth, was given over to Adam. In other words, in Genesis chapter 1, verse uh, 28, God said to Adam, God blessed him, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God said to Adam, here, it's your earth. Be fruitful, be multiplied, have dominion, subdue it. I'm giving it all to you, Adam. It all belongs to you. You name the animals, you run the earth. It all belongs to you. 
It's all yours, Adam. I'm giving it to you. But he only put one condition on it. Don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now here, when notice this. When the earth was given over to Adam, what was the condition of the earth? It was perfect. The Garden of Eden, everything, you know, there was no animals eating animals. Every, it, it was a perfect world given over to Adam. It was given over to him in a perfect sense. There was nothing wrong. There was no death. There was, it, it was perfect for him, Genesis tells us. It was a perfect world, but then something happened. What did Adam do? What did Adam and Eve do? They sinned. They ate of the fruit that they weren't supposed to eat. Listen, I believe this. When planet Earth was given over to Adam, it was perfect, but he sinned. Adam forfeited his right to ownership when he ate from the tree of knowledge and good and evil. Eve was tricked into it by the serpent, but Adam ate willingly. He ate, he, she brought it to him, and he ate. He ate willingly. Now, because of this, the Bible indicates to us very clearly in many different places, the Bible indicates that Adam's sin, the result of his sin, not only transferred sin to all men, but it transferred the, the control of the earth over to who? To Satan. Well, where does it say that, Rob? Follow with me. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Paul would call Satan the god of this age. In 1 John 5.19, John would say, we know that we are of God, and the whole earth lies under the sway of the wicked one. Jesus himself, in John 12, 31, would call Satan the ruler of this world. So let me just make sure you follow along with me. When God handed over planet earth to Adam, it was perfect. There was no problems. He said, just don't do this, Adam. Just don't eat from that tree. When Adam sinned, he broke the obligation between him and God. He brought sin into the world, which transferred control of the earth, of the earth over to Satan. That's substantiated by the quotes in Scripture. Even Jesus says that Satan is the ruler of this world. Now, that's important because when someone asks you the question, well, if God is so good, why are so many bad things happening around us? Now you tell them you're blaming the wrong person. Because there was no bad things happening around us when God handed over the world to Adam. It was a perfect world. It was perfect. Animals didn't eat each other. Man didn't eat animals. We lived off fruit and plants. The water came up out of the ground. Everything was beautiful and lush. We cohabitated together with no problem at all. What changed that? Man did. Man changed that when man sinned. When man brought sin into the world, that's what changed it. So when someone says, well, I don't understand why bad things happen to kids. I don't understand why bad things happen to people, you know, good people. Whatever the reason, and you've all heard it in some sense, in some form, it's because sin was brought into the world. It's not God's fault. God said, I'm going to give you this world. Don't do this. And man said, well, I'm going to do it anyways. Man does it. It brings sin into the world. But here's the good news. God's not done. God's not done. This whole plan is a plan of redemption. He wants to redeem mankind back to himself. He's going to create a new heaven and a new earth where Satan will be cast out and there will be no more temptation. We're living in this process, in this plan of redemption by God. So when, when John says, I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals, I saw a strong angel proclaim with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll? Who's worthy to open the scroll? And to loose its seals, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. 
Nobody could do it. So we read here, John wept much. And the Greek language means that he wept convulsively. It was a continual weeping. It wasn't just a, I didn't just, he didn't just shed a tear. It was a broken-hearted, convulsing weeping because no one is worthy to open the scroll. No one's worthy. No, who's going to meet the requirements? Who's going to pay off the debt? What was the debt? Sin. Sin was the debt that was brought into the world. Sin was the debt. What was written on the back of the scroll? Um, this is my guess. I believe it was the sins of the world. I believe there was sin written on the back. Your sin, my sin. I believe that was what was written on the back of the scroll. John's crying. He's weeping because nobody meets this qualification. He's literally tore up. The plan of God has come to a stop. The plan of righteousness is coming to an end in John's eyes at this point. Listen, Warren Wearsby puts it this way. He says, a title deed or a will can be opened only by the appointed heir. And this is Jesus Christ. No one in all the universe could be found worthy enough to break the seals. No wonder John wept. For he realized that God's glorious redemption plan for mankind could never be completed until the scroll was opened. The Redeemer had to be near of kin, willing to redeem and able to redeem. Jesus Christ met all of the qualifications. He became flesh, so he is our kinsman. He loves us and is willing to redeem, and he paid the price, so he is able to redeem. You see, the picture here is this scroll. And while we just spent several minutes talking about what's inside the scroll, that's not as important as the seals being opened and who's worthy to open the scroll. Because when we guess at what's inside the scroll, and that's really what it is, it's a guess. Because like I said, there's a lot of Bible scholars that believe different things. I personally align with, I think it's the title deed to earth. I think John sees that, he realizes that. I think that he's upset and he's crying because God's plan of redemption is coming to an end to redeem the earth. But I want you to see something in verse 5. One of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Don't weep, John. Get up. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll. The lion of the tribe of Judah, that refers to Jacob's blessing on his son Judah in Genesis chapter 49. It's where Jacob prophetically gave the scepter to his son Judah. It's where he declared that his son Judah would be the tribe that all the kings would come from. All the kings that were going to lead the nation of Israel were going to come from Judah. It says this in Genesis 49, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until, until Shiloh comes, or until the Messiah comes. Now, here's the catch there. The scepter represents power. It represents the ability to rule yourselves. In about 12 AD, the Roman government took away the power from the Israelites, from the Jewish people to rule themselves. What they did is they took away, the, they, the Jewish people were no longer allowed to pronounce a death sentence on anybody. They took that away from them. At this time, it's about, in about 12 AD, the priests and the rabbis were floored. They were upset. They went into the streets and they tore their clothes because they, they said the scepter has now been taken away from Jerusalem from Israel. We can no longer rule ourselves. We no longer can judge and pronounce judgment to the maximum degree upon ourselves. We have to now require the Roman government. And the reason they were mourning this was because the prophecy says that wouldn't happen until Shiloh comes. 
Shiloh's the Messiah. The judgment of Israel will not, the scepter will not be removed until Shiloh comes well. At 12 AD, we know who was on the scene by then, don't we? That would probably have been right around the time Jesus as a young boy was in the temple, talking with the priests, negotiating with the priests, sharing with them, confounding the priests. They're upset because the Messiah hasn't come. They've lost the ability to rule themselves, and Messiah's in their midst. Messiah's right there in their midst. But they didn't realize it. Instead of being upset because they couldn't see him, they should have started looking. They should have opened up the Old Testament and got out their, well, not their Bibles, got out their scrolls and started reading, saying, what does it say about Messiah? What, what are we looking for? Who are we looking for? And they should have tracked backwards, but they didn't. So Messiah's on the scene at this point. That's when he refers to the line of the tribe of Judah. Now, when he talks about the root of David, he means, uh, which means he brought David's line into existence, which means he's saying this, this, this Jesus Christ, this one that's worthy to open the scroll, is the one that brought David's line into existence. But we also know that Christ came from the line of David, don't we? He also came from the line of David. So how is it that he brought him into existence and also came from the same line? It speaks of the eternality of Jesus Christ. If someone were to say to you, well, no, Jesus didn't exist until he was born here on earth, this is a perfect place to take him. How did he bring a line of David into existence if he didn't exist? How could he possibly do that? But it clearly says that he's bringing him in. The root of David. Jesus is the root of David as well as the branch of David, and it speaks of his eternality. Now look at verse 6. I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne on the four living creatures, and these are seraphim, or angels, in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out to all the earth. John is on the floor weeping. He's crying because no one's worthy. The angel says to him, hey, Come on, there is one that's worthy. He's from the line of the tribe of Judah. And he looks and John sees, who does he see there? Jesus. But how does he describe him? He describes him as lamb. He's a lamb. In the throne of the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as though it had been slain. He describes Jesus as still bearing the marks of the cross. He's not on the floor as a dead lamb. He's standing. And he's describing him saying, you can still see the marks as though he had been slain. You can still see the beating that he took. You can still see the way that his body was abused. It's not completely covered up. And that's not foreign because even when Jesus met the disciples in the upper room, what did he say to Thomas? Touch. Go ahead. Come feel me. Here's my body. My holes in my hands. my, My side has been pierced. He's still bearing those marks. But he also describes them. He also says he has seven horns and seven eyes. Oh, there's the horns things. That's, don't let that confuse you. That's really simple to understand. Horn is a representation of power. It rep, there, and you, and when you study the book of Daniel, there's big horns, there's little horns, big power, little power. Just understand the horn is a representation of power. And think of it this way. What part of the ox do you want to stay away from? The horn. What part of the bull do you want to stay away from? The horn, what's going to hurt you? Where, where does the power lie? It, it, it lies in his horns, in, 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 the, in the animal's horns. It's a representation of power. And the seven eyes speaks that Jesus is, is of his perfect insight. He sees everything. Seven is a number of perfection. It's a number of completion. Jesus sees everything that's taking place. And the seven spirits of God are upon him. That's the complete and the fulfilled work of the Holy Spirit. We've talked about that much in previous studies. 
Then, in verse 7, he came and took the scroll out of his right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song. Jesus comes, he takes the scroll out of the right hand of the Father, and when he had taken the scroll, immediately the four living creatures, which were told are the, are the seraphim, the angels, and were told that the elders, the 24 elders, fell down before the Lamb. Remember, the 24 elders is a corporate representation of the body of Christ. From Old Testament saints to New Testament saints. It's, a, it's, not a, it's not a strict number of 24. We talked about that last week. 24 in other places in the Bible represents a corporate body. We've seen that before. So it represents the 24 elders. Is, is, it's us. It's the church that's been raptured into heaven. We're now, we're now bowing down. Who's worthy? Jesus is worthy. He stands up. He walks across. He takes the scroll, the title deed to earth, out of the hand of the Lord, and he's going to open it because he is the only one that was worthy to pay the penalty for the sin that was written on the back of it. He's worthy. The moment that happens, you can imagine worship breaks out. Worship is breaking out in heaven. And look at what they're singing. And to open its seals, I'm sorry, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. And out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, you've made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. We shall reign on the earth. Before we get to that, I just want to draw your attention back up a little bit higher to verse 8. Notice something. Before the Lamb, each having a harp. A harp. There's going to be musical instruments in heaven. If you, if you like musical music, there's going to be lots of music in heaven. Now, we know that John's describing this as a harp. It, it's probably some, it could be a harp. It could be a, some sort of stringed instrument. But there's going to be musical there. There's going to be music taking place. And these bowls, these golden bowls, are representative of the prayers of the people. What is it that we pray? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Don't we pray for the will of the Lord to be done on earth as it is in heaven? That's what these bowls are. They're, they're our prayers, symbolic of our prayers, being poured out at the feet of the Lord Jesus. But then this song breaks out. This song here in verse 9, You're worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed, redeemed. What does your Bible say there? Have redeemed. Mine says us. Some Bibles say them. You have redeemed us. Some Bibles say them to our God by your blood. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us, again, some say them, kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. That little word us becomes a huge debate in Bible scholars. Because depending on where you stand, whether you're a pre-tribulation believer or a mid-tribulation or a post-tribulation believer, you have to do something with this verse. If you believe in a post-tribulation or a mid-tribulation rapture of the church, you've got a problem with the word us. Because the word us clearly means us. It means the church. It, it, it's a picture of the church being in heaven. And you certainly couldn't say that if this is just the 12 apostles and the 12 and the 12. Uh, uh, tribes, you couldn't just say that they represent out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Because the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles don't represent somebody from every tribe and every tongue. 
So here's what you'll find as you study, that, study these words, and I don't want to go too deep because I don't want to confuse you here, but if you were to study those words, if you have a newer translation, it might say them. But here's what you'll find. If you go back to the 1634 revision of the King James Version, it says us. If you go back to the 1611 version, it says us. If you go back to the Geneva Bible, it says us. As a matter of fact, as far back as you go, it says us until you get to what's known as the modern translations. Now, I place, I'm not a Bible translation freak. You know, I I think that God can use all of them, but I, I place a lot of emphasis on what the King James Bible says. And if you study it even farther, here's what critics will say. Wait, 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 wait a minute. We think it should be translated them. Well, why? Because if you look back at ancient manuscripts, we have 95 manuscripts of the book of Revelation. And it's only translated us in 23 of the manuscripts. So therefore, we think it should be translated them and not us. But here's the problem. Of the 95 manuscripts of the book of Revelation, only 24 of them contain chapter 5. And in, all 20, in 23 of the 24, it's translated us. But they don't tell you that part. They don't want to go back that far because it, 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 this is one of those verses that depending on where your theology hinges, you have to do something with it. If you're pre-tribulation, like I am, I look at that and go, that's us, it's clear. You know, God promised the churches they were going to be sitting on, on thrones. God promised the church that they were going to have crowns. God promised the church that they would be clothed in white. And, and that's what we see taking place. I have no problem with that. But somebody who comes and says, well, I don't really believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, ask them the question, who is, in the, who is this? Who is it referring to? And please don't get into an argument over it. It's not worth it. It's really not. But who is this referring to? Who, who, can, who can, listen to it again, who can sing this song? You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and, has, and have redeemed us to God by your blood. The angels can't sing that because they haven't been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation... And have made us kings and priests to our God, we shall reign on the earth. The only group that can sing that song the way this is written is the church. Which puts the church where? Up in heaven when this is taking place. Which means everything that's going to come after this, the church isn't a part of. The church has been raptured or taken up or caught away, as the words would say, to be in heaven. But notice, this worship breaks out. And as a side note, here's a little pet peeve of me, of mine. The worship in heaven is all about God. It's all about Jesus. Yet so often the worship on earth is all about us. They're they're I songs. I can only imagine. I surrender all. They're I songs. Not that they're not good prayers to pray, but they're not worship. You see, worship to God has to be about him or about Christ. When, I talk, when, when I'm singing about me and what I'm feeling and what my life is doing and what's happening on, on, here on earth, that's not worship to him. If you notice the worship to God here, it's all about him. That's why when our, in our worship, when we select our songs, we don't play many, if any, of the I worship songs or the me worship songs. Because I can't worship God. Let me put it to you this way. We could all sing, I surrender. You ever sang, I surrender all? You guys have been in church. I surrender all. Yeah, and it's great. I surrender all. Do you really? Have you really surrendered all? Well, no. You, really, you should be singing, I wish I could surrender all. I'm trying to surrender all. Help me surrender all. But you really can't sing, I surrendered all. I don't think. If you can, come talk to me because I want to learn how to do it. Because I keep taking things back from myself. 
But it's a prayer. It's a, it's a, that type of song leads us in prayer to the Lord. I want to surrender all. At this moment in time, I'm surrendering all, Lord. But it's not worship to him. Worship to him is when we glorify him, when we declare who he is. Worship is taking place right here. Worship is taking place. You are worthy to open the scroll. You can open its seals. You were slain. You have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and nation. And have, you have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Do you see the difference? Worship needs to be about him and not about us. That's the difference. If songs are about me, and they can be good, catchy songs. There can be good Christian songs. There's nothing wrong with them. But don't mistake worship to God for a song that's all about you and what's going on in your life. It's not the same thing. Now, continuing on, this is taking place. Verse 11, then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne. What do you think that would sound like? I heard the voice of many angels around the throne. The living creatures, what are the living creatures? They're animals. We know Jesus is coming back on a horse. The elder, I don't know if your dog or cat will be there. That's people, will my my dog or cat be in heaven? I don't know. You know, I I really don't. I know there'll be animals in heaven because the, the scriptures tell us that. But, you know, whether dogs and cats go to heaven, we'll have to wait to see to find that out, you know. Heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders. The number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice. That number, don't do your math and you can't really add it up. It simply means this. The word for 10,000 is myriad. It's where we get our English word for myriad. It's a large number not precisely defined. That's what it means. It means there are literally thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of who? Of the elders and the elders, the angels, the living creatures, all of the, the throne of God is surrounded with worship that's taking place. As Jesus open, grabs a hold of the scroll, as he opens it, he's going to get ready to open it. Worship is happening in heaven, and man, it is going to be good. You can think about the best worship experience you ever had, and it's not even going to compare. You are going to be in the presence of the Lord, and he is going to stand up and be worthy to continue this plan of redemption for mankind and for earth, and it is going to be an incredible time of worship. It is going to be cool. Here's what they're saying. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. True worship takes place when you can see the lamb that was slain. When you can focus and you can connect with Christ in that spiritual sense where you realize, notice the worship, the lamb who was slain. He's going to receive power, riches, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and blessing. Not us. We're not focusing on ourselves here. Where's our focus? It's on Christ. You see, today in Christianity, even in church, even in the Christian life, I think we spend a lot of time focusing on ourselves We want to make ourselves comfortable. We want to make ourselves happy. We want to make ourselves feel good about ourselves. We want to make ourselves look good to other people. But when we get to heaven, it's not going to be about us. And as much as possible, our life here on this earth needs to not be about us as well. It needs to be about about other people. You see, I believe with all my heart, the Lord created each one of you with a specific purpose in mind. He has a plan for your life. You're not here by chance. He, wants, he, he created you to do something for him. Some will be great and recognized publicly. Some will be small and maybe insignificant, but it won't be insignificant when you get to heaven. 
It won't be insignificant at all. If you fulfilled the plan that God's called you for, you're going to hear those words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Now we're into your rest. You're not going to hear, well, you didn't do as much as this person. There's no comparison of crowns or who got what. We're all in the presence of the Lord together. And this worship is taking place, verse 13, every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth, such as are in the sea, and all that are in them, I heard saying, blessing and honor, glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and the lamb forever and ever. Every creature will worship the Lord. Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Jesus refers to himself as the lamb. I'm the lamb. I died for you. I'm the lamb that was slain in your place. I paid the penalty for your sins. And please understand that when I say that he died for you and he paid this penalty for your sins, he didn't excuse it. He didn't just say, all right, Rob, well, you're pretty, you're okay, and someday you're going to be teaching my word, so I'm just going to wipe out your sins. I'm just going to, I'm going to dismiss them as though. No, no, that's not what happened. I paid the penalty, which means your sins sentenced you to death. Therefore, I am going to death for you. It would be like somebody being sentenced to death row today and somebody else saying, no, no, I'll die for them. I'll do it. I'll go in their place. It's not an excusal of our sins. It's not where the Lord just says, well, it's okay. Don't worry about it. Everybody does that. No, he says, I'll pay that price. I'll pay that price. Why? Because he wants to redeem mankind back to himself. The Bible is this whole picture. If you look at the Bible from beginning to end, it's a story of God redeeming fallen mankind back to himself. That's what the whole book is about. God gave man the earth. Man fell, brought sin. Satan has control. But the Lord says, I'm going to get it back. You see, I believe when Jesus died and resurrected, he, he bought, he owns that title deed to earth. But he hasn't opened it yet. It's still in the right hand of the Father. There's coming a day because the church age hasn't ended yet. We're still living at the end of Revelation chapter 3. We're still in that point. The church age is still in existence. I think four of the churches are still in existence that you can look at. And he's waiting. What's he waiting for? He's waiting for the last person to come to Christ. The last person. When the last person that's supposed to, the last person that's going to make the profession for Christ is going to come, then the church will be taken up and the scrolls will be in heaven and we'll begin to see the scroll opened. While this is taking place, verse 14, the four living creatures said, Amen. And it's a present tense, which means it's continually saying, Amen, Amen, Amen. They're worshiping, they're, 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 the angels are saying, Amen. The 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. So this picture of worship that's taking place in heaven, this picture of the church being removed. When you look around at the earth, at the world, at our country, what do you see? Do you see things getting worse or better? It's pretty obvious that things are getting worse. We're not dealing with anything new. The sin that we're dealing with has been around for a long time. It's new to our country in a lot of senses. But it's been globally for a long time. But here's the catch to the whole thing. There's coming a day where the Lord will come back. We sang about it. Come, Jesus, come. We look forward to his return. The question is, are you going to go or will you get left behind? You see, because as the church is taken up, as the church is raptured, as the church is removed from this judgment that's about to come, there's a whole group of people who will be left behind. There's a whole group of people who will then carry through this tribulation period that's going to live out. We're going to begin studying it next week.
as we see those seals become opened. Are you going to be ready to go up when the Lord calls? Or are you going to be left behind? Now, please understand something. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be left behind. I want to go when the Lord calls. But if you get left behind, it doesn't mean that you lost the opportunity to get saved. Because I believe, and the scripture will show us, that many people get saved during the tribulation period. It's going to cost them their life because they're going to have to choose to follow Christ or to die. It'll cost them their life, but they will get saved. And they'll be in a different position, and we'll see that in the coming weeks as we study. But I wouldn't be doing my job in not saying, are you ready to go? If he comes back tonight, if tonight's the night, if the last person that's going to get saved is today at church somewhere around the country, the last person, that's going to be it. Maybe this afternoon, would you go? Would you be taken up with him or are you doubting? Are you going, well, I don't know if I would go or not. Rob, I don't, that's, that's kind of a hard question. It's not a hard question because those that know they're going to go will go. It's, it's like, it's, it's, it's simple. It's, do you know when you have a cold and you have the flu? Yeah, how do you know? Well, there's symptoms in my life. You don't have to wonder. I think I got the flu. No, if you're coughing, sneezing, hacking, you've got the flu. It's simple. There's symptoms that go along with it. Same thing in the life of a believer. When you're saved and you're secure in the love of Christ and you're, and you're made righteous by the blood at the cross, you know that. It's, you, you don't have to worry about losing it. You don't have to worry about... It's just, it's just clear. Am I, are you saved? Yes, I'm saved. And with that salvation comes a change in your life. With that salvation says, you know what, I'm not the same person that I used to be. So my question is, if, if today's the day, would you go? Or would you get left behind? You see, I don't want anybody to get left behind. I've got friends and family that I care deeply about that I know for a fact wouldn't be going. I know for a fact they haven't chose to follow Christ. And let me explain something to you about what it means to be a Christian. Being a Christian doesn't mean everything's going to be okay. It, doesn't, it, it will be an eternity. But it doesn't mean that life is going to be full of money and no one will ever get sick and life is just going to be one blessing after another and we're going to walk through earth and people are going to open doors for us and do that. That's not the way it works. It doesn't mean that you're not going to have struggles with sin. It doesn't mean that you're not going to have a problem with sin. It doesn't mean that you're not going to be dealing with many of the issues that your friends and family deal with that aren't Christians. What it means is you're a person who says, I believe the Lord Jesus Christ died on a cross for my sins. I know that I'm a sinner, I've done a lot of bad things, and I know that I need a Savior, and He is my Savior. And I am going to take this life that I have been living for myself from whenever to whenever, and I'm going to turn it over to Him and say, Lord, would you lead me? Would you forgive me for my sins? Would you guide me in this way? I can't work my marriage. I can't work the problems at work. I can't work the relationship problems. I can't do these things without you. I've tried and it's left me in a big hole. It's left me empty. It's real simple. To give your life to Christ is a decision that you have to make. Are you ready? Before we close... I would be remiss as a pastor if I didn't ask, is there anybody here this morning that needs to give their life to Christ? Is there anybody here this morning that has never made that decision who says, you know what, Rob, when you say, if the Lord was to come back tonight, I don't know if I would go. Is there anybody here that needs to make that decision? If you do, raise up your hand. I just want to pray with you, and we can accept Christ together. I won't make you come up here, but I just want to say a prayer, and I'll, I'll pray out loud, and you can just repeat my words. 
But is there anybody here that's never made that decision or has been away from Christ for a long time that says, you know what, I need, I need that. I need that. I, I don't, I don't want to be taking the chance of left behind. Anybody? Good. I hope and trust that we will all be called home together when the time comes. And I also want to remind you of something. While we look forward to the return of Christ, let's focus on what he's called us to do here on this earth while we're here. Don't get so caught up in looking up. So caught up in, oh, today could be the day. Well, it might not be the day. Because Paul thought it was going to be the day 2,000 years ago. But I can guarantee you we're closer than he was. By a couple thousand years. Let it be our prayer that we'd be busy about his work on this earth because there's still people that need to be saved. If every one of us is in this room is saved, we've got work to do. We've got family and friends that we need to get out and share the gospel with. And we need to be studying the word and being able to share the word with them. Because what's going to change somebody's life more than anything is the word of God. The Bible is what's going to change your life. We, we study the Bible the way that we do so that we can learn it and put it in our hearts. That's why we study entirely through a book. That's why next week when you come in, we'll be in chapter 6. I want you guys to have a full knowledge, a full grasp of the understanding of the Word of God. That's why we don't skip around, and that's why we don't cut things out, and I don't skip over things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you for these last couple of chapters that we've been studying. Lord, we see this incredible picture of, of heaven that unfolds in front of us. Lord, while there's a picture of glory taking place with you, from here on out, as we study what's going on the earth, it's going to be far from glory, Lord. As these seals begin to be opened, and your judgment and wrath, what's called the wrath of the Lamb, begins to be poured out, all in your plan, Lord, but it's still going to be hard to read. Father, my prayer is that nobody here this morning would be left behind. That nobody here this morning would have to wonder, am I saved? Father, you died to set us free from the sin that so easily ensnares us. You died so we wouldn't have to be caught in sin and struggle with sin. Lord, we thank you for that. And Father, as we go on about our day and our week, may you bless us. May you keep us close to you. May we be diligent about spending time with you. And may our hearts and our minds just connect with yours, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.